Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you. How is everyone? How are you? Okay, good. There we go. A little bit more of a response there. Uh, it's good to be back. I missed you all last week, sort of. I mean, I really did, but I was on the mountains in Colorado, and so I was okay. Uh, special word of thanks to, to Warren Etheridge for filling in uh, in my absence. I always appreciate his willingness to come and, and to teach. He's got a great gift and a great heart. I'm sure you were encouraged by his word, and I'm truly grateful, really, to be a part of a congregation that has so many people like him that I can call upon and lean on um, to, to fill in in my absence and know that you're going to get a good, thoughtful, uh, biblically-driven message while I'm away. And so special thanks to Warren. It, it was a great trip for my family. We were up in the, the mountains of Colorado with an opportunity just to get away for a little bit, and uh, it was a really wonderful opportunity. We were also seeking to try to celebrate the end of a decade uh, as I'm wrapping up my 30s. And so prayers appreciated, church, as I enter into a new decade here in the next few weeks. Uh, but it was a great time. Uh, for our family, but I did miss being with you all. I'm, I'm glad to be back. It was also, I think, somewhat difficult because the last time I was with you was a very difficult passage in the book of Romans. And so that's, I guess, one way to do it, teach something incredibly difficult and then leave town, right, and just allow you all to kind of sort through it on your own in the days that, thought, that follow. Um, it was a difficult passage, if you can think back to the end of chapter one of the book of Romans, Romans 1, 18 through 32. It's a pretty challenging text. And, and the reason it's challenging is because Paul takes this dramatic shift after his introduction where he kind of reaches this culmination in verse 16 and 17, talking about he's not ashamed of the gospel and the righteous will live by faith and the gospel is the power of God's salvation to all who believe and it's this really uplifting moment. And then he completely shifts to the wrath of God being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness and those who suppress the truth. And then goes into this very uh, elaborate exploration of what the wrath of God being revealed against such godlessness and wickedness looks like. And so if you can recall a little bit, uh, godlessness really speaks to the rebellion against God. Uh, that allowed us to, to look into a little bit of the vivid descriptions that Paul provides about idolatry and the idolatrous heart, the exchange, right? The exchange of a glory of an immortal God for created things, exchanging the truth of God for a lie. That's the idolatrous, godless nature that we see as a part of the human dilemma. Wickedness speaks more to not so much the rebellion against God, but rebellion against mankind in the way that we can treat one another. And we have this long list of sins and behaviors and, and actions that we can often demonstrate towards others that are very destructive and hurtful. And, and so it's, it's not exactly an uplifting text. It, it's very difficult. It's one that it comes with really, uh, it kind of forces you to face the human dilemma, right? It, it forces you to confront sin and brokenness in a very powerful and a very important way. And so a lot of times we try to avoid those sorts of passages, right? We would prefer not to think about sin and brokenness, but it is a very important part to really the Christian experience as a whole, right? To be a follower of Jesus, you have to take time throughout your life to confront sin and brokenness, Right? That, that is an essential part of what it means to follow in Christ. And, and not only just in terms of what it means to follow Christ, but specific to the season that we're in, in particular right now in the season of Lent. As we've shared with you uh, over the last several weeks, part of what we hope is, is being fostered and encouraged for you to consider over the next few weeks as we approach Easter is for you to take a very personal journey to the cross. And when you take a journey to the cross, you need to take time to evaluate and confront the problem of sin and brokenness in your life and in the world. 
right? If we don't consider what put him on the cross, then our journey to the cross loses a certain value. We have to consider what it is that, that led him to the cross himself and confront sin and brokenness. Right? We also need to recognize the importance of this in terms of what it means to have a renewed life. This has been the theme for the year. And when you think about how we introduce the theme of a renewed life, we introduce it by looking at Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. And three of the characteristics of a renewed life that we extracted from those verses was what? Devotion, discernment, and delight. So when you confront sin and you confront brokenness, it leads you to repentance. Repentance is a key marker of devotion, right? When you confront sin and brokenness, it allows you to identify the things that are probably hindering you from discerning God's will in your life, right? Just as Hebrews 12 says, let us throw off the sin that's so easily entangled so we can run the race marked out for us, so we can know what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is. We have to confront sin in order to do this. We need to confront sin and brokenness because those are often the things that hold us in bondage, hold us in captivity, and rob us of the joy and the delight of living for God. So this is an essential part of living for Christ, right? And so the hope, though, that while these are very difficult conversations, right, to really head on and, and have a direct, explicit exploration into sin and brokenness, the hope is that along the way, we're able to see, once again, God's kindness, right? We're able to see that though the curse of sin is real, we've been set free from it, right? It doesn't have a hold on us anymore. We're hopefully able to see the extent of God's kindness despite all the sin and brokenness that exists in the world in a way that creates and fosters a very deep appreciation for his kindness. And, and I think life is often filled with a lot of examples of what that feels like. Have you ever been in those moments where you've just been overwhelmed by someone else's kindness? Um, that, that's kind of a recent example for us on this trip. We were able to go to Colorado, but uh, one of my dad's best friends owns a cabin there, and, and uh, that's really the only way the trip was made possible. And, and so when I reached out to him to see if, he was being, if it was being used, he offered it to us to, to use for free. And you go up to the mountains, and you take in this amazing landscape, this beautiful new fallen snow. You get a chance to go skiing with your family and come back to the warmth of just this incredible space and home and continually over the last week, I was just overwhelmed with gratitude because there was nothing I could do to repay him. Like, nothing. There, there is nothing I could offer to this man to, to provide a re, an appropriate response of the extent of kindness that he had offered me. Now, I know that's a trivial example when compared it to the gospel, but we know those feelings, right? When we're just so overwhelmed by someone else's kindness or a demonstration of kindness where we realize there's nothing I can actually do to, to repay this sort of kindness that has been extended to me. And that's my hope of part of what we see today, that not only when we have to deal seriously with sin and brokenness do we find that we're set free from that curse, but that the kindness of God should foster within us a deep and profound appreciation for all that he offers us in its place, right? That he offers us peace, that he offers us glory, that he offers us honor, that he offers us everlasting life, and that we could truly celebrate that sort of grace and that sort of provision. So that's my hope 
as we continue this discussion. It's still a very difficult section of this letter to the church in Rome, but I believe it's also very encouraging. So grab your Bibles, let's turn to Romans chapter 2, and we'll continue our conversation as Paul continues this letter. Now, where he's left off, just as a quick reminder, is a pretty difficult text, like I just said, and, and offered that summary, but as he concludes it, is with this kind of really bleak and chilling picture in verse 32. To me, it's one of the most uh, difficult parts of that first section where he says, not only did those who do such things know they deserve death, right? Not only did they continue to do such things, but they approved of those who practiced them, right? So he describes the plight of humanity. He describes the level of sin and brokenness that exists in the human heart to such an extent that it arrives at a place where you actually stop caring, that you, you, you don't even care that it's deserving of death. And not only do you not care, you actually approve and celebrate others that join you in the process. Now, it's a very chilling and, and horrifying verse and one that I think often depicts our culture. And so as he's finished off this description, he picks up and continues this argument in Romans chapter two. Let's read along starting in verse one, reading through verse 11. He says, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself, because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. But glory honor and peace for everyone who does good, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. For God does not show favoritism. All right, so here's how Paul continues. It's a really interesting shift. As he goes into this elaborate exploration in verses 18 through 32 to address the godlessness and wickedness against uh, mankind and all those who suppress the truth, it's almost as if there's this imaginary onlooker that's standing right there with Paul, right? That as he's just laying out all these accusations and all these things against humanity and society, it's almost like somebody's behind him going, yeah, you know, yeah, how dare you gossip and how dare you slander and just this person that's joining with Paul in this sort of verdict and condemnation. And then it's almost like all of a sudden Paul shifts his focus to that person and says, okay, but you, you who cast judgment on someone else, you have no excuse because you do the same things, right? He addresses this kind of uh, fictitious onlooker that's there with him. Now, one of the reasons I think Paul probably does this is because he could probably identify with that way of thinking and that mindset, because this speaks to who Paul was before he met Jesus on the Damascus Road, right? This certain uh, belief that he had in himself that gave him the right to kind of cast judgment and view himself as faultless 
in the eyes of others and in the eyes of God. If you, if you, you don't need to turn there, but if you were to look at Philippians chapter 3, listen to how he describes himself. Chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. He says, if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. This is how Paul saw himself prior to meeting Jesus on that Damascus road. So he understands that mindset that views himself as faultless in terms of the righteousness of the law and what God desires that gives him the credibility to actually persecute others and to stand in condemnation against them, stand in judgment against them. And so he's addressing that mindset. And part of the reason he's addressing that mindset not just is because it was his own previously, but because it is likely part of what you're seeing in the Roman church between Jews and Gentiles. Right, that in many respects, so much of what was described in verses 18 through 32 likely could be attributed more to a Gentile background, right? That sort of idolatrous mindset and debauchery and lack of morality. And so you could almost sense the Jewish congregants in their midst looking in on that part of the letter and going, yes, these Gentiles, look at how terrible they conduct themselves. And Paul then tries to shift and says, well, why do you think you get to cast judgment on them? You do the same things. Now, what does he mean by that? Because there was a difference, right? If you just understand the nature of, of a Jew's tendency to try to follow the law and, and it definitely has a certain difference than the ways that the Gentiles conducted themselves, what does he mean by the fact that they're doing the same things? Part of what he's addressing here is that by assuming this position of judgment over someone else, that in and of itself is a similar act of idolatry. Because you're a mere human being. You don't get to escape God's judgment. Only God gets to judge. So when you try to usurp that power and that authority by casting judgment on someone else, you're putting yourself in God's throne, and that's idolatry. You're doing the same thing. You're a mere human being. You're not going to escape God's judgment. And so a huge part, and, and why it's so valuable and critical, especially when we need to read all of these verses in context, because it's so easy to read verses 1, 18 through 32, and assume that same position and use it to cast judgment on other people. But at the moment that we assume that position, we're guilty of the same idolatrous mindset. We have no excuse to pass judgment on others. Now, before we elaborate on this a little bit further, let's make sure we understand by what I mean when I'm referring to this idea of judgment, okay? Because what we often see within churches, especially today, is to take verses like this, to take elements of, of passages like this that allow us to extract this call to no longer judge others, right, and then equate it to just a blind tolerance that it permit, it allows us to permit any sort of sinful behavior, right? Well, you can't judge me for doing that, right? It says not to judge. Judge not lest you be judged, right? All those different things that we see in Scripture. And so we, we take it to an extreme that kind of develops a position where you're just supposed to permit people to live however they want. And, and so when we assume that judgment is taken to that extreme, it eliminates accountability. And that's not at all what the scripture teaches. Right? That's not at all. We absolutely 
are called towards accountability. We're absolutely called towards holiness. We're absolutely called towards truth. We don't just set those things aside in the name of being non-judgmental, right? The point that Paul is really trying to address here and what he's really after is the tendency that we have within our human hearts to think that that sinfulness and that brokenness doesn't apply to us, right? This idea that, that I somehow get to escape God's judgment, right? That, it, that I'm faultless, that, that I don't have to really worry about my own sin and brokenness. I can just worry about the sin and brokenness of somebody else's. That is not biblical, right? What Paul is saying is that we all participate in it. He's hitting that human tendency. And I think we can all recognize that we have it, right? I mean, you can see it in some of the most trivial examples in life. You're driving down the highway, somebody cuts you off, and you're gonna have all the reason in the world to judge them for their reckless driving, their terrible carelessness on the road, and, and it doesn't matter what happened or why they did it, they were wrong. Switch the shoes though, and let's say you accidentally cut somebody off, what are you gonna do? You're gonna give yourself grace, right? Well, you know, I mean, I didn't see them there, they didn't see my blinker, my kids were going crazy, I didn't know, right? We have a tendency to so easily cast blame on others and excuse ourselves. That's the human tendency. It's so much easier to point fingers than to look in the mirror. And that's what Paul is getting after. You don't have that right. None of us have the right to escape the presence of sin and brokenness. Right? So beyond the trivial examples, let me give you an example of how we often sense that spirit working itself out when we are sitting and studying scripture together or we're in churches together. A good way to know if you're falling victim to this level of self-deception and, and kind of allowing yourself to escape the sense that maybe you don't really need to consider the sin and brokenness in your life is when you go through sermons like this one or you go through sermons like the previous one that I was here for and you hear a list of sins and you hear a list of brokenness and you start thinking of other people, right? You start hearing a, ser a sermon on not being judgmental and you're thinking about all the other people that are judgmental in your life. Well, let me tell you who needs to work on this one, right? Oh, I can tell you who's a gossip. I know who needs to listen to that sermon. I'm gonna send this one to them. That is the spirit of self-deception. And that's what Paul is after. Right? What he's saying is that all of us, all of us need to repent. Every single heart. Right? The Jews have kind of assumed the self-deception that they were going to be immune to it because they were God's chosen people. He said, no, you have no excuse. Right? And so when we fall victim to that level of self-deception, right? When we fall victim to that mindset and we allow it to create a certain, what he just calls a stubbornness of heart, right? When, when we all of a sudden refuse to repent, the life that we start to live is a life that is showing contempt for his kindness, right? The word contempt could be translated and defined as disdain. Right, so you think about that, right? When we confront our own sin and our brokenness, what it does is it opens our eyes to our need for mercy. And the more we understand our need for mercy and see that it is extended to us, we encounter the kindness of God. But when it's just what everyone else needs, and it's just what is wrong with society, 
and it's just what other people are struggling with. And that allows us to almost subconsciously, almost unknowingly develop a certain stubbornness of heart. That creates a lifestyle that is showing disdain for the kindness of God. A kindness that has been extended to you and to me. And so that's what he's trying to get us to see, right? Every heart needs to repent. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. They all have to live by faith. They all have to repent. And so it creates a certain simplicity in this particular text. All right, if you really kind of begin to walk through the logic that he begins to present as a result of this sort of call and this sort of urging, it's pretty simple. And, and it reminds us once again of the inevitability of God's judgment. And like it, it's, it's going to happen. We're going to stand before God and give an account for our lives. And it, it will not be based upon all these different details and nuances. It's going to be pretty simple. Did your heart pursue that which was good or that which was evil? Did your heart pursue repentance or stubbornness? That's pretty much all it comes down to. And so it, it warrants a pretty important introspection from each of us, right? It, it, it really necessitates each of us to come to passages like this and, and forget about the people sitting around us Forget about the people in society and forget about all these other people that we are so quickly to point our fingers towards and really just look inwardly and ask that question, what is my heart pursuing? And so have you asked yourself that question recently? Like, what is your heart's pursuit? What does it desire? What does it love? What is it after? Right, is, is it seeking Itself Is it seeking its own gratification? Is it seeking its own suppression of the truth? Is it seeking its own fulfillment? Or is it seeking repentance? Is it seeking goodness? Right? What is it actually seeking? And I think we have to really understand the importance of really recognizing that it is a heart issue. Right? And that, that we have to look inwardly to determine what it is that our heart is actually pursuing. And I think we need to be able to do on, deal honestly with God because the truth is, I think we can all admit this, I'd be willing to go so far as to say we've all done this, but we can fool each other and we can definitely even try to fool ourselves. Like, especially if you grew up in church. You can play the game, right? We all can we, we know the answers, we know the posture, we know what tone to set. Like we can absolutely play the game. We, we can cloak ourselves in cultural Christianity and absolutely try to fool others and fool ourselves. Can't fool God. He knows what your heart wants. He knows what it's pursuing. So, so much better to deal honestly with ourselves and with him and to confess our brokenness, confess our waywardness, confess our doubt, confess whatever it may be and offer our hearts to him. So what is your heart pursuing? 
It's really one of two directions. Stubbornness, repentance. Which path will you go down? Now part of what I think really adds value to this particular passage and and where it becomes less heavy in certain respects and and maybe more life-giving is to see the repercussions of what your heart pursues. Right, when he begins to actually speak to what is in store for the wayward heart or the repentant heart. Right, he begins to speak to all the different things that you can anticipate as he elaborates again on how God responds to the human heart. Right, so for the wayward heart, which is described as the heart that is self-seeking, that rejects the truth and follows evil. Those are the descriptions he uses in this particular passage. Right, so if, if that's a description of, of the wayward heart, here's what's in store for that avenue and for that path. Wrath, anger, trouble, distress. And none of those things are in Peely, right? I think this is why this is so important. None of us really goes out and seeks trouble and distress. Nobody wants that. But we have to recognize that we can actually fool ourselves, deceive ourselves. That's the, the idea of self-deception that Paul is after here, that if you begin to follow that sort of self-seeking interest, that it is going to ultimately just lead to trouble and distress to wrath, and to anger. It will not work out. The difficulty, as you and I know from living in the flesh and understanding sinful desires, is that a lot of times what adds to the self-deception is the momentary gratification of sin. Right? That, that, that initial moment of pleasure or fulfillment or satisfaction that makes us think that it's going to be better. Right? It's, it's the allure of idolatry. Right? We've said this numerous times, right? that it's going to give you everything and cost you nothing. Doesn't that sound awesome? But over the long haul, sometimes perhaps more instantaneously, sometimes over the duration of an entire life, eventually it's going to give you nothing and cost you everything. It will create trouble and distress. And so we have to guard against the self-deception. We have to guard against the wayward heart the heart that is unrepentant because it leads to a very difficult end, both in the present life and in the life to come. And so we have to take seriously the consequences of an unrepentant heart, but we also should be able to really marvel at the kindness of God in what is offered to the repentant heart, right? So the repentant heart is described here as the heart that persists in doing good, and seeks the glory, honor, and immortality of God, right? So so let's define some of those terms. Persistence in doing good speaks to the idea of endurance, right? It it speaks to the idea of a certain commitment and consistency. It speaks to that idea of conviction. It speaks to the idea of difficulty, right? That you're going to have to endure. It's going to require persistence. There is no easy answer. Right? And so there's the persistence in doing good for those who seek glory, honor, and immortality. Right? And so those who seek, that verb seek can also be translated who keep on seeking. It has a continual effect when you really translate it through the Greek. It's this idea, again, that complements endurance and persistence. Right? That you have to keep on seeking these things. Right? That it's not just a one-time commitment. Now, how do you do that? How do you foster a life that is 
able to practice that sort of endurance and, and that sort of uh, consistency in seeking. Because if you're like me, <clears throat> there are times in life where I can confront certain situations and be overwhelmed by all the potential ramifications. Right? When I think big picture and I think long term, that, that's when things can become incredibly overwhelming. Right? I've had certain trials and hardships and situations in our lives where you start thinking, as I've told you before, of worst case scenario, what happens if all these things go wrong? And it can become incredibly overwhelming. And that really, that overwhelming spirit can really challenge the resolve that you have for persistence, persistence and endurance to keep on seeking. One of the greatest things that the Lord has taught me in the last 10 years or so is the value of not worrying about tomorrow and seek his kingdom today. Man, it's so beautifully stated and so hard to do. But there is something incredibly freeing in that. Right? Rather than being overwhelmed by all the challenges and all the uncertainties and all the unknowns that may be on the horizon, that may come with tomorrow, can you wake up today and say, today, Lord, I'll give you my endurance. Today, I'll seek you. Today, I'll seek your glory, your honor, and your immortality. Can you do it for one day? And can you wake up with whatever the rest of this day has for each and every one of you, whatever errands you need to run after church, whatever family time that you have, whatever commitment that might be later today, can you take whatever today provides you and say, today, Lord, I'll give you all of my heart. I'll seek you first today. If we can foster that sort of mindset and live with that sort of thinking, then when tomorrow comes, if it comes for us, because there is no guarantee, we wake up and we do it again. And you take it one day at a time. Lord, I'll give you my heart today. I'll trust you today. That's, for me, where I have found the strength and the resolve to do my best to live with that sort of persistence. Because the rest of all the uncertainties and all the unknowns, it's just too difficult, it's too much. But I can give you today, Lord. And if we can foster that sort of habitual giving, man, I, I believe we can start seeking those things out. And so look at what he's pursuing. He's seeking the glory of God. He's seeking the honor of God the immortal perspective of God, having that eternal mindset. And so that's the, that's the description of the repentant heart, the heart that's gonna wake up every day, not claim to be perfect, in humility acknowledge its own brokenness, its own sin, not seek to just point the finger at others, but say, because of my brokenness, because of my sin, I'm going to repent and I'm gonna give you everything I can today. That's the description. And so what awaits that heart? What is offered as the reward? Well, there's at least four things explicitly mentioned as you read through this set of verses. Glory, honor, peace, and eternal life. Uh, 2 verse 10 is really kind of the, the summation of it there towards the end. To those who seek these things, he will provide glory, honor, and peace. Earlier in the passage, he refers to eternal life. We've actually talked about Romans 2 verse 10 before. I don't know if you recall, I don't know how many of you were with us. It was pre-pandemic. Uh, it was back in 2019, if I'm not mistaken. And we were going through a series, I think it was for Missions Month, uh, where we broke down Matthew chapter 10. 
in Matthew chapter 10 is where Jesus sends out the disciples, right? He sends them to the villages to go heal and to, to proclaim and to, to do all these different things. And towards the end of that passage, chapter 10, verse 40, thereabouts, Jesus references the reward, right? For those who do these things, right? Those who follow, uh, here's the reward that is awaiting you. And it was one of the first sermons to really stop and think through and reflect upon what are the rewards that are awaiting those who are faithful in Christ? What, what, what does that actually look like? You know, a lot of times we sing about it, but I don't know that we ever really stop and reflect upon it. And so that was one of the first sermons where we had a chance to do so. And uh, that led me in my study to Romans chapter 2, verse 10, where some of those rewards are explicitly stated. Glory, honor, peace, eternal life. Right? It's a very different picture, honestly. I remember studying it back then and, and thinking about a lot of the rewards being you know, a, a, a crown of, of jewels or all these different heavenly you know, things that you often picture and imagine after you read through Revelation and all the glory that's going to be revealed with the new heaven and the new earth and all those different things. And then to stop and really reflect upon just the simplicity of that, that what God actually provides to the faithful, repentant heart is glory, honor, peace, and life. And, and really, uh, what kind of stirred me further as I began to study this was a sermon that was offered by Jonathan Edwards. And that's really where I spent a good bulk of my time in that sermon back in 2019. So I actually went back and reviewed my notes and some of the things that Edwards uh, offers in his sermons as he, his sermon as he reflects upon Romans chapter 2, verse 10, and I, I think it bears repeating today. Right? He, he really takes a very unique and very thoughtful uh, approach to interpreting what is stated there when we seek to understand what, what Paul is referring to with glory, honor, and peace in particular. And so a couple of things that, that I want to remind you of, if you were with us or share with you for the first time if you weren't, is that from all of this really kind of coming from Edward's perspective, but when, when Paul references glory here, that we have received the reward of the repentant heart, receives this reward, so to speak, of glory. What does that mean? What Edwards would say is that that is really speaking to the idea of us being created in the image of our creator. And that that means we carry a certain inherent glory because he is glorious. And to be made in his image means that we have the capacity to reflect his glory. Because we're made in his image, we have an inherent worth and value. Regardless of what sort of sin or mistake or brokenness or burden any of us carry, we have the privilege, the opportunity, the incredible blessing to reflect the image of our creator in his glory. And because that has been bestowed upon us, each and every one of us, each and every human heart has an inherent worth, which should also caution us towards this tendency towards judgment and pointing fingers, to pointing to people's sins over the inherent glory that they carry as image bearers. So when we read the Psalms and it says you are fearfully and wonderfully made, 
Every single one of you should know you are valued. You have an inherent worth. And so if that's a question you've wrestled with recently, if you come into this room wondering if God sees you, wondering if he cares, wondering if anyone values you, then question it no longer. You've been given the privilege and the gift and the blessing to be made in the image of a glorious God. And you can portray and reflect that glory, thereby giving you an inherent value and worth. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. What a gift that is. And it's not just glory, it's honor. I think it's really special to see the the distinctive nature of what it means to be an image bearer, not just that we are somehow created in this deified image, but that he refers to us as his children. And to understand, especially from an ancient context, an ancient text, that children had a certain designation that was different from others, right? We're more than just servants, though servants we are. But he calls us his own. He calls us his children. And with that comes a certain identity. With that comes a certain honor to be known as children of God. Now you see this on the playground sometimes, right? Like with the little kids that, sit around and brag about their dads, you know, yeah, well, my dad's better than your dad, my dad could beat up your dad, all those different things, right? There's this certain pride that can take place within the family when a child knows they belong, right? When a name has been given to them, a reputation that they can hold and that they can live up to, there's a certain honor in being known as children of God that each and every one of us carry. He's given us the honor of being known as his children, not forgotten, not abandoned, not cast aside, but his children. An honor to be loved by a father and not just a creator. So you have Edwards pointing out not just the glory, not just the honor, but the one he really elaborates on the most would be peace. Right, that there's a certain peace that comes by finding this repentance and pursuing God and seeking God and and living that life of of goodness that he describes here in Romans chapter two. So he breaks down peace in a couple of different categories. One of the first ways that we experience peace is in safety. Understanding further that we are his children, understanding that when you receive the gospel of Christ, you are secure within that. That doesn't mean that life is going to be free from hardship, doesn't mean that life is gonna be free from any sort of trial or difficulty, but what it means is that ultimately we overcome. And so that gives us a certain safety. Think about the peace that you have when you go to bed at night and you know that you're safe. You ever slept in an area where you felt unsafe, stayed in a hotel, lived in a certain part of the world, or visited a certain neighborhood where all of a sudden you were concerned and confused, right? I mean, all those different things. When that safety is questioned, it is a complete disruption to, to, to peace. Just the other night, man, this happens all the time. I've said this before to y'all as a sermon illustration. Just the other night, literally like two nights ago, our alarm went off at like 2 a.m. I like that loud, just, you know, and I mean, it is anything but peaceful, okay? And so the minute that your safety is disrupted, peace leaves. And so to understand the security that we have in Christ leads to a certain Peace, because we know that we have this safety, we have this assurance in this gospel. 
Edwards also points out not just the peace that comes from understanding his safety, but understanding the certain blessings that he affords us, that he wants to be known, that he reveals himself, that we have the opportunity to know our God, to know that there is a creator, to know that there is a loving father. We have that capacity, we have that gift, and that also should lead to peace. Peace that not just comes from, again, understanding safety or understanding these certain blessings, but a peace that's gonna come as well from being able to really understand his provision, right? That he gives us purpose, that he gives us something to do, that it's even in our doing to know that we can have a life that has meaning, that has fulfillment. It is not worthless, it is not meaningless, it has purpose, and that should give us peace, right? There, there's meaning to all the madness. There's, there's purpose that can be found even amidst the chaos and the sin and the brokenness that exists around it. Right? We have a chance to allow that light to shine in our doing, in our serving, in our loving our neighbor, and the fact that we have that sort of purpose should give us peace. Right? And so think of just all the blessings that come just in this life, just in this life alone, without even having to think about heaven, what it means to benefit from the glory, honor, and peace that is given to the repentant heart. But we can't look past the call towards the eternal life as well. Right, that, that he does say, for those who persist in doing good, he will give them eternal life. And that is another element to what Edwards points to when referring to this particular passage. Right? And what we should not ever lose sight of is the fact that at its core, we have been given the promise of victory over death. And if there is anything I could emphasize once again for you, church, this morning, is that the essence of the gospel is a belief in the resurrection from the dead. Do you believe it? Right? It is a, a belief that Jesus was raised. Paul elaborates in his letter to the church in Corinth, if we don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, we are to be pitied more than all men. Then our faith is futile and we are still in our sins. That's the message. Without the resurrection of the dead, confronting sin and brokenness is to confront it without hope. But with the belief that Jesus has conquered the grave, we believe we have been set free from the curse of sin and death. And so we must believe at its core the idea that not just Jesus was raised, but we will join him in that resurrection. And he gives us everlasting life. And to believe in that everlasting life is to believe in the new heaven and the new earth, to believe in the new kingdom, a kingdom where there will be no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more pain, no more tears. It's what our hearts long for. Do you believe it? Because it's been offered to you. Here is a free gift. Don't show disdain for the kindness of God. Because the greatest gift of all, church, and I'll close with this, the greatest gift of all, and this is where it all makes sense and it all comes together and all the answers are ultimately found, is that the greatest gift is not glory, it's not honor, it's not peace, it's not even just everlasting life, it's not the kingdom, the greatest gift is we get the king. Get Jesus. And there is nothing like him. No one 
like him. You're not going to find happiness and purpose through your spouse or through your children or through your job or through your neighborhood or anything else that's only in Jesus. And that's the greatest gift of all. And it's the one that fully demonstrates the kindness of our God. And my hope is that we can stand together today and marvel at his kindness. That our hearts could be so stirred by such love that we would confront even our own sin and brokenness and choose repentance. That we could choose to persist in doing good. That we could seek glory, honor, and immortality so that we could not just receive better experiences in life and a greater sense of peace, but so that we could draw closer into an unbelievable intimacy with our King and believe with our whole hearts that he has set us free from the curse of sin and death, that we can journey to the cross this Lenten season and look upon this man of sorrows, this man that was familiar with suffering and understand that it was our sin that put him there. And yet to see that the stone has been rolled away and the tomb has been emptied of its power. And in so doing, we've been set free. And we can marvel at the kindness of our God that has been offered to us. And let that be the song that we sing today. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do love you. Help us in our moments where our love falls short. God, we acknowledge that our hearts are prone to wander. And we feel it. We're prone to leave this God that we love. And so, Father, take our hearts and seal it, God, that we would once again see so clearly what you've revealed in Christ. Help us to gaze upon the cross more than anything else. Help us to trust in the cross above ourselves. God, and allow us to have a heart that does not show disdain for your kindness, but one that comes before you once again offering all of our confessions of sin and brokenness and a resolve and a commitment to persist in doing good, God. Help us to see once again the beauty of receiving all that has been offered to us so that our lives could be filled and experience glory, honor, peace, and the hope of everlasting life, the hope of the kingdom, and the promise of being with the king. We love you, Father. And we pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen and amen.